Welcome to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker, and he's the host of the Live Inspired Podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. I am so thrilled to announce my Live Inspired in studio with John O'Leary. If you like the Live Inspired podcast, you will love joining me and our community in studio. I created in studio a monthly live virtual experience as a place to share inspiration, ideas, tools, and time to have a discussion on topics that matter most to you. Yes, you. I've never offered anything like this before, and registration is open for a limited time, so don't delay. Learn more and register now, that's right now, at johnolearyinspires.com forward slash in studio. That's johnolearyinspires.com forward slash in studio, or if it's easier for you, go to johnolearyinspires.com and then check out the rest. We'll lead you to the landing page. We will lead you into the in studio, and it will launch you into the best of your life going forward. I can't wait to see you live in studio, my friends. Well, hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and I'm so happy to have you here joining me in the Live Inspired Movement. On every Live Inspired podcast episode, I have amazing guests join me to share their story, their successes, their failures, their lessons, and their life. Yes, you will hear absolutely profound and unforgettably inspiring stories. But more importantly, you will take away real ideas to apply in your own life. My friends, the goal here is to have guests on this show that will inspire you, yes, you, to choose to wake up from accidental living so that you can do, you can be, you can achieve, you can impact more through your life. Or, you know, maybe a little more simply said, so that you can live inspired. My wife and I, on occasion, after getting the kids to bed, will veg out in front of the television, and sometimes we even tune into a, an app you may have heard of called Netflix. Well, not long ago, she and I were browsing the catalog, bumped into a movie we'd never even heard of. It's called Undefeated. About two hours and three minutes later, we look at each other and that kind of face of, wow, man, wow, that was a crazy good story. Crazy good. And the Oscar goes to Undefeated, T.J. Martin, Dan Lindsay, and Rich Middlemas. We learned a little bit more about the main character within the story. Learned that it was not a fake story. It's not Hollywood produced. It's real. It's a documentary. It's a true story. And in some regards, the star of that, and in some regards, one of the supporting stars of that, because really the story is not even about this person, blew me away to such a degree that I bought his book. I read the book. I loved the book. I loved the message, and I loved the man who wrote it today. The leader of that book, the author of that life, and the friend itself who did both is with us in studio on the line. His name is Coach Bill Courtney. Bill Courtney, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Thanks for having me. Man, we're delighted to have you on the show, and I'm delighted to bring you on to uh, our friends. They're, they're excited to learn more about you and your story. Bill, for those who may not have heard of Undefeated, and they may not know anything about you today, give give us an update on on where you are, what your life looks like, what you do professionally. Well, I, I, 
own a lumber company. Uh, I've got about 130 employees, and um, it sits on 100 and uh, about about 45 acres, and we manufacture hardwood lumber. I've got offices in Shanghai and Ho Chi Minh, Vietnam, Shanghai, China, Serbia, Indonesia, and we export hardwood lumber all over the place. That's what I do for that's my real life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I also coach football, and when I graduated from college, <laughs> I, that's all I ever wanted to do was be a teacher and a coach. But I married. My wife, Lisa, who I've been married to now for 25 years, who is smoking hot, and I'm a fat redheaded you, guy. You did outkick the coverage, man. I just I, I hear that a lot oh, myself, but you, you saw definitely that. did. Oh, it's big, big time. And she's um, smoking hot, and I'm fat and redheaded. <laughs> and, you know, I don't know for those of your listeners who fish, but, you know, if you're on an eight-pound test and you light into a 35- or 40-pound slab, you'll do everything not to let it get off the hook. You'll you'll net it. You'll shut down your trolling motor. You won't pull too hard. You just don't want to let a slab off the hook. And that's kind of the way I felt like when I married Lisa. So uh, we just started having kids. It's the best way I knew to keep her around. <laughs> Had four of them. Our children were one, two, three, and four. Um, and... The teaching and coaching didn't provide enough, and so I had to get out of that and went into business and had about $10,000 and started this thing on my couch in 2001, kind of on a wish and a prayer, and now it is what it is, but I continued to coach football in non-faculty position along the way. And when I started my business, uh, a year later, uh, there was this opportunity to coach at this inner city school it was a mile from where I opened up the mm-hmm. the lumber company, and there were 17 kids on a team. They'd won four games in 10 years, and I thought, well, that'll be fun because nobody's going to fire me. <laughs> and I went over there and started coaching football. And so my life is I'm a I'm a married guy with four children. Um, I run a lumber company that's had a, a great deal of success despite me screwing up and bouncing around on the curbs and Mm -hmm. coaching football. And I I grew up in Memphis. Um, My mom was married and divorced five times. I I don't, didn't come up with a whole lot. Uh, My mom's fourth husband shot at me down a hallway when I was 17 years old. And so that's kind of my reality. And so the whole coaching thing is as much about the men in my life who meant something to me oftentimes as a, as an adolescent and a, and a, and a, and a, and a teenager going through puberty and trying to figure out what a real man was when I didn't have much of an example at home were my coaches. And so I see it as a, not only something I love to do and not only about winning and losing games, but I see it as a vocation to reach young men who need to be reached. And so that's what I do. Uh, you do a lot. You mentioned you won the team before you arrived, won four games in 10 years. And as you said that, it just made me think, you know, we had a team like that in St. Louis called the St. Louis Rams. So uh, although you're not coaching for them, I, I feel your pain of that community, man, and what it's like to go home with a, a brown paper bag over your head after each loss. So I've, I've been there. It was truly ironic. I loved the Rams helmets as a kid. Yeah, me too. And even when they were in L.A., the Rams have always been my favorite NFL football team. I, that's an aside. It has nothing to do with this, but it just was when I was a kid, and I was a huge Eric Dickerson fan, and I, I, I know that precedes St. Louis as well. Right. But um, 
I, anyway, I feel your pain with the Rams. Well, and I sure. feel your pain with high school boys. So let, let, let's bring it all the way back, man. Your your mother is sounds, of course, like a very interesting woman, and uh, we we can chat about her. I'd like to hear about your father. It, from what I understand, have read and heard that you you walk around with a father wound, man. So just talk about your dad, what you knew about him, and and where he went. Well, he, he bolted when I was four. Um, and uh, was never really very involved in my life. There was a time when I was about 15 that for a while we kind of got back together. He bolted again. He he married and um, took in his new wife's kid and um, just didn't have anything to do with me. Um, uh, I, I will tell you that one of the things that you see in Undefeated, which is my um continued effort to reach the kids from this very impoverished area was that I, I genuinely looked in their eyes and felt their pain because yes. I can remember as a 13, 14, 15, 16 year old kid growing up, I, I lettered in six sports in high school. Um, my dad was a starting point guard and, and quarterback for his football team. It was very good and had some college offers and, you know, he read the sports page and I was in it. So I know he knew his son was out there doing stuff, yet he never attended a single thing. And um, and so really as, a, as an adolescent who, whose frontal lobe is still forming and who really doesn't understand how the world works, I, I was trying constantly to figure out what was wrong with me that my father didn't want me. Yes. And that manifested itself in a chip on my shoulder, it manifests itself into um, into effort that that just I was constantly trying to do things to try to prove myself, you know, really to myself that I was worthy, and and you know you fast forward to my time at Manassas with all of these fatherless kids um, and all of the destructive behavior that they were involved in, you know, I really felt them. I understood it because it's where I came from. And so although I'm a white business owner who most people would look at today and say he's a wealthy white business guy, um, my reality is that I, I, I identified far more with the the, yeah. the, the poverty-stricken kids at Manassas than I do even my own children. Mm. You mentioned your dad, and uh, it sounds like your mother had her own intriguing story. So you you have two examples generally of what you don't want to do. Tell me about some of the examples of guys or gals, coaches, teachers, whomever who stepped into your life who modeled for you what you did want to do. Well, uh, there's a guy named Babe Felker. His son Rocky Felker is associate um, athletic director at Mississippi State. Babe was uh, a white-haired, venerable old guy. Matter of fact, um, old school coach. But uh, he was tough. He was a disciplinarian, but he was—he also loved you. And he—he he was a guy that once pulled me to the side and said, "You got a good brain. You're athletic. You got everything going for you. And you can eat, keep acting like a jackass if you want to and destroy your life, or you can recognize that just because your dad's not around, it's not an excuse to be a jackass." And that was an awakening for me. Um, I had coaches all along. I mean, I played, believe it or not, I also played chess in high school, and Dale Flickinger was my chess coach, for goodness sakes, and he was also my math teacher. And 
um, to, to watch his intensity with regard to excitement mm. uh, as kids learned. And I just, I, you know, there's just so many along the way to, to, to mention, but I don't think that we are exactly like any of the mentors that make us environmentally who we become as adults. But I think we do choose bits and pieces of all the mentors and that kind of comprises who we are. So Mm -hmm. I'm not exactly like any of them, Mm -hmm. but I'm a whole lot in parts like a lot of them. And and I don't think that's unique to my particular circumstances, just the way we are. And so, you know, coaches and teachers meant so much to me growing up because that's the only place I got any real wholesome encouragement that I think that's why I was drawn to do that as an adult. Um, and, and, you know, I, I don't think I, it, a lot of people have patted me on the back and all of that stuff for, you know, all that we've done, given back to the community and especially this particular community. But I really don't see it as something that's nice to do. Mm-hmm. I think when you're so blessed that the Lord blesses you with a business that makes you a bunch of money and that, that employs a bunch of people and, and you're offered an opportunity to, to have a daily impact on people's lives who desperately need it. I, I don't see giving back as something nice to do. I, I really honestly see it as more of a responsibility. And so, um, you know, I, I, and, I, and I think that also comes from uh, the way that I saw coaches and teachers approach me and, and other students is, you know, they didn't do it because it was something right. nice to do. They, they did it as a responsibility. Bill, did you, when you graduated college, did you start coaching right away? Yeah, that's what I did. I, I graduated with a degree in psychology and a degree in English and was working toward my doctorate and um, needed a job and started coaching uh, coaching football and basketball and teaching um, psychology and English in high school. Um, and I quit a dissertation away from my doctorate mm-hmm. because child number two was on the way. And uh, But, yeah, that's, and that's really all I ever wanted to do. That's honest to goodness. It's all I ever wanted to do. But the reality of finances and four children and everything else changed that and put me on a different track, but I never got away from it. I, I never, there wasn't a single year that I wasn't a non-faculty coach in some yes. capacity. Tell the listeners, because, you know, we have folks, of course, in Memphis tuning in today, but they're coming in from all over the world. For those who have no idea, uh, I think it's North Memphis and Manassas in particular, give, give them a, uh, give them a sense for what kind of community this is. Sure, but uh, North, North, well, North Memphis is kind of a misnomer. It's three miles north of downtown. It's still part of Memphis. It's just an area called North Memphis inside the city limits of Memphis. It's um, it at one time was a bustling in the '60s, '50s, and '40s was a bustling blue collar area. Uh, Firestone's largest plant was there. Dupont, Terminex. Um, International Harvester all had large plants there. And April 4th, 1968, Martin Luther King was shot uh, five miles south of North Memphis um, at the Ryan Motel, basically in downtown Memphis. Riots ensued, and uh, Memphis fell apart. Um, within a 
year of that happening, Firestone, DuPont, Terminex, International Harvester, and a number of other supporting industries surrounding those businesses left. And what was left was a neighborhood with no jobs and no grocery stores and fundamentally no structure. Um, you take that happening in 1970 and fast forward to 2010, 40 years later, you're now on your second and third generation of loss and despair and hopelessness. Um, Manassas is the school that serves that community. Mm. And that community is, you know, I can give you tons of demographics, but maybe the, the three most stark are 63% of the homes in that neighborhood call the grandmother, the head of the household, the average annual, the annual median income is $12,600. Uh, $12, uh, 52% of the homes don't have an operating vehicle. Um, and probably most stark is an 18-year-old male from North Memphis is three times more likely to be dead or incarcerated by his 21st birthday than he is to be in college. Oh, gosh. So as Hollywood sensationalizes these areas all day, every day, and people drive past them over viaducts in East St. Louis or South Chicago or North Memphis or any of these other areas that exist all over the urban areas in our, in our country, um, it is, in fact, one of the most dire areas in the United States. It's, it's rough. So, man, you're a self-described redneck, rounded, red, red-haired, good old boy. I'm and, not a redneck. Well, I'm I not think, a redneck, but I'm a fat, red-headed Southern dude, for right, sure. Man. So you're, you're these things. <laughs> what, what is it about this neighborhood that the rest of us, all of us for the most part, hop in our cars and drive right through as quickly as we can with the locks down and the windows up, that had you be even remotely open to pausing and realizing that this is a place where you can you can lay your roots you can do some good work well i started a business and i had no money so that's where the cheapest industrial land existed in the united states so i bought the land to start my business there just because it was cheap and everybody's like holy crap that's rough and i'm like yeah it's rough but it's cheap <laughs> and i can go there so that's what brought me here in the first place and then Secondly, the school's a mile from there, and the opportunity came up. They they knew who I was from football, heard I was in town, and came over and said, hey, can you help? So I said, yeah. And people were like, weren't you scared? And I'm like, no. That's how I, – I mean, I played basketball on those same courts. I, I I hit stickball on those same fields. That's I mean, I didn't have anything coming up. I mean, who cares? They're black, I'm white. What's, what's the difference? They're still mm -hmm. poor, and it's still the same – atmosphere and they're still just kids and so i was allowed to have my cake and eat it too i could i could i didn't go there to save anybody this isn't any white paternalism story i just i was here my business was here an opportunity to run my business and stay involved in football existed and so i took it um here's a story you need to hear along these lines you know you, you said that people roll the windows up tight and everything else and and they, they look over that viaduct and think, this is not where I want to have a flat tire. But interestingly, it's also the places that on Christmas and Thanksgiving, people often go to, you know, serve in a soup kitchen or deliver to the needy. 
Um, in my first year at Manassas, we were halfway through the season. We were three and three, and now I think three and three is pretty average. But well, you've won four games in ten years. Three and three isn't that bad. And I, when I first got to Manassas, it was obvious to me we needed to coach a lot of stuff other than just football, yes. like character, dignity, uh, showing up on time. Um, uh, all of the fundamentals that you're grand, all of the fundamentals that are in my book, yes. basically. And and halfway through the season, we were three and three, and all the kids were very respectful and yes sir and no sir on the football field and buying into the football stuff, but only half the team was really buying in to those important tenets that we we recognized we had to instill in these kids. And it was driving me crazy. So I went to my guy, every coach has a guy, and I went to my guy and I said, Bo, what do I got to do to get that half the team to buy into the important stuff like your half the team? Everybody's being cool with the football, but I need them to buy into the important stuff. And Bo and I had had some pretty real talks, and he just said, I'll coach, just keep doing what you're doing, dismissively. And if you have kids, you know exactly yes. how that response was. And I said, no, Bo, straight up, tell me what's up. He said, Coach, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I said, Coach, you're not going to hurt my feelings. Bo, you're not going to hurt my feelings. He said, all right, Coach, real talk. I said, real talk. He said, they're trying to figure out if you're a turkey person or not. And I said, okay, you're telling me that these guys are buying into football but not buying into the important stuff because they need to, they're trying to figure out if I'm a turkey person. He said, yeah. I said, I don't understand what you're saying. He said, Coach, every Thanksgiving and Christmas, people roll into our neighborhoods and they drop off turkeys and hams and gifts and we take them because we ain't got none. Hmm. But then they leave and we never see them again. And it makes you wonder if they're doing that because they really care about us or they're doing that to make themselves feel good. Hmm. And he looked me dead in the eyes and he says, Coach, what the hell are you doing in North Memphis, bro? And I think that it, that is a completely true story, but I think anecdotally it is exactly why I stayed at Manassas for seven years, because I'll be damned if I was going to have those kids think that I was like everybody else they'd seen in their life that was there just to sensationalize them and use them for their own edification and then bolt. Um, so your question was, what made me go there? Mm -hmm. Well, because it was just convenient. But what made me stay there, what made me stay there was the recognition that these kids had suffered so much loss and had been sold out so much that all they were looking for was some consistency from somebody. And I just felt like it was a great opportunity to, to give the very basic needs that these children needed, which was love, self-assurance, consistency, and, 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 and the beauty of that is, and the moral to that story is that four and 96 record turned and 19 kids on the football team, seven years later, six years later was 75 kids on a football team, 18 wins and two losses. And in an area that an 18 year old kid is three times more likely to be dead or jailed than he is to be in college. We graduated 36 seniors off our last two teams and 35 went to college. Mm. And it's not because I'm a professor. <laughs> It's just because we gave them some consistent love and some consistent 
you know, self-awareness and, and stayed consistent on the tenets and characteristics that matter in a full and meaningful life. And even the kids from the worst of the worst areas who have the greatest barriers to success, even they found success with just the, the basics provided. How much coaching goes into even opening them up to receiving the basics the first time through? I mean, you're t- using words that I would imagine some of these kids don't know, man, like like character, like goals. I would imagine you're really bringing to mind some stuff that they really, most of us have not been trained up on, but in particular, kids in this neighborhood. So I, how much foundational work is there before you can start building up, coach? Years. <laughs> Years, because they've heard it before, but they've never seen it. I mean, you know, they've had guys that coach teams and guys from the neighborhood and teachers who are there just drawing a check. And I'm not saying all of them, but some of them. And certainly parents and cousins and aunties and whatever else all talk that, but they never saw it. So when you start talking that, you're just noise. Mm -hmm. You're just noise like everybody else that's let them down in their lives. So... It takes time. It takes consistency. It takes daily, consistent time before it clicks that, oh, I see, this isn't like everybody else. But you're reversing decades mm-hmm. of, of, of a conditioning, um, and that doesn't happen in a month. You have to be there every day, all day and show consistent love. You have to love despite, not because of. Hmm. Um, You have to hold kids accountable who have never been held accountable, but then love them up twice as much as you beat them up. And then maybe over the course of an extended period of time, you start getting to see some some changes. And... um, and really, that's what you see in the movie, because the movie is the seventh year. All that led up to that was the work. The work, man, digging the holes, um, the trenches, the foot, the footing. Take me, take us through, Coach. A couple of the uh, you mentioned earlier, the guy. We all have a guy, and you mentioned Bo. In the movie, you have a couple guys too. Some are obviously your guys, and others are the guys that are the biggest pain in your rear end. <laughs> and, uh, my gosh, yeah. I mean, it's it's almost like a Hollywood script as the season plays out on how the flip. Well, that, and that's why the thing wins the Academy Award because so many people. I I've done that one, the Jenner show, Jimmy Kimmel show. I've done a hundred speeches. I've done Sports Center. I've, I've done I've done all of it and continue to do all of it, which is amazing to me that I do, but I do, and I get the question all the time how much of this was scripted, how much, you know, and I'm telling you right now, and I'm telling your listeners right now, there was not one time, not one instant, not one second where Dan or TJ, who are the directors asked me to repeat something or would you mind saying it a different way? Or would you mind posing over here in this corner for this? It is truly, they, they left Memphis with 550 hours of film to make the hour and 53 minutes you saw. And they just captured all of that. Um, And I just say that so that when you say it's almost like it's scripted, I hear that all the time. And I have people ask me all the time how much of it was. And and to your point, 
none. Well, and just to be clear, because that would, if I were in your shoes, it would almost bother me to think that someone thinks this is scripted. I knew it was not, man. I just, it's one of the most beautiful stories and even the way it ends. And we don't need to explain how it all ends, but gosh, uh, people got to check out that movie. They got to check out the heart behind it. And of course your book against the grain. Take me, take me, uh, talk about the gentleman. Is his name Chavez? Chavez. Chavez. Talk about Chavez. I him yesterday. Okay. Well, Chavis was uh, my third year. Am I lying to you? Second, second or third year, Chavis showed up as a freshman. Uh, second year. No, third year. Showed up as a freshman. Um, and he was a physical freak. As a freshman, started outside linebacker, ran right, made tackles, um, arrived at tackles with a, a very serious purpose and very quickly showed himself to me to be one of the many kids that had college talent, um, but he was an absolute disaster. He was a mess, angry all the time. Um, anyway, uh, after the fifth game of his freshman year, he had 13 tackles and a pick, and I'm thinking, I've got to start getting college guys to look at him, even as a freshman. We've got to get him some camps. Go to practice Monday, and no Chavis. Tuesday, no Chavis. Wednesday, no Chavis, and nobody on the team knows where Chavis is, and Thursday, I get a I, I, a kid tells me on the team that uh, here Chavis got locked up. Yeah. I didn't know where his mom was, didn't know where his dad was, nothing. Well, Chavis got locked up. He was a 14-year-old riding around with some 18 and 19-year-olds, and there was some dope and guns, and he got locked up. Um, and I'd you know, never forgotten about Chavis, but, of course, we'd moved on. And then two years later, honest to goodness, Chavis shows up. Uh, about three weeks before we're about to start football, and he uh, he had serious anger issues, and the the juvenile detention center just made him even more aggressive and angry. Um, but he'd grown, and now he was looking like a grown man. And um, but there's always this thing about Chavis that there's this always this when you got him away from an audience, he was. He was two things, really. He was emotional, and he was uh, he was malleable. Honestly, I mean, he would bend. Um, he 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 wasn't so caught up in his despair and anger that he wouldn't listen. Um, and for that reason, I just thought he was worth giving a shot. And so he came back on the team, um, and the movie explorers that year which as you said was trying um and we held him accountable and we disciplined him um but we loved him anyway uh chavis is now a college graduate and he has a full-time job in memphis uh he has a son and he coaches Mm. the memphis steelers inner city mentoring and football program and he's got 82 or three kids from North Memphis now playing uh, Little League football for them, and they are required to do mentoring time as well as football, and his number one job is to keep kids from taking his track, and he is doing a beautiful job, which is phenomenal considering that's the same person you see in Undefeated. And I hear what you're saying. For people to understand how far gone he was, they really do have to see the movie. 
because he's gone. I mean, if it's not for football and if it's not for the guidance of you and the other coaches, he's 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 off the track and he's one of the other stats you shared earlier. When when you think of this example and so many other examples like that, Bill, which what do you feel, man? What do you think? I feel that um, God blessed me with uh, a phenomenal opportunity, and he um, shown his grace on me and the other coaches and allowed his work to be done in a place that it was needed the very most, and I feel humbled and honored to have been part of it. The, the two words combined, phenomenal opportunity, are two words that I heard when I saw your movie. Uh, and when I heard them, I laughed because I just love your optimism. It's halftime of game two. You lost game one. You're getting blown out in game two. The sideline's a train wreck. Your kids aren't listening. And you're screaming at them, 20, not, 20 nothing losing. What a phenomenal opportunity this is to come back and show some character. And, man, I just, I That's loved true. it. What well, is but true. It was true. I wasn't lying to them, and that wasn't a rah rah speech. I mean, here we are down 20 nothing to our biggest <laughs> rival. What a great opportunity. We'd done everything we could possibly do that first half to lose the game. We were 50 times better than that. And we still hadn't gotten over the hump about how to – listen, undefeated is not about wins and losses. It's about Mm -hmm. not being defeated by your circumstances. Well, our circumstances in that first half sucked. But it presented an amazing opportunity to show everybody in crowds, everybody on the other team, everybody – uh, in the stands, everybody from our school, but most importantly to ourselves, that it was a great opportunity so that we were different and we had the will inside of us to take a lick in the mouth, but come on and keep on coming. And it was a phenomenal opportunity to, to prove to ourselves we had it in us to overcome obstacles, which kids from these areas don't often overcome obstacles. They don't even have the the skill set. They don't even know what it feels like to, you know, everybody's like, it's a free country, free education, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Well, if you're 16 years old, never seen anybody in your life ever, don't even have bootstraps, much less bootstraps to pull up. You don't have that skill set. And we've been working on that skill set for years and it was an opportunity. And so it wasn't a raw rock speech it's really the way i felt this is a great opportunity for us to finally prove to ourselves all of this talk about character and commitment integrity and and rising above it all this is a great opportunity to show everybody we can do it well, and they, it proved yourselves you can do it they heard you and they they followed through on the on the potential and it, it's an amazing aspect of that game but really like you're saying it's not about football my, my wife hates football she didn't watch that movie with me for two hours to watch the tackles on the sideline, man. Like, it, it's not a football movie. It's a, no, it's a life-moving it's, character. It's No, it's not a football movie. It's a drama about a bunch of people that happen to come together inside a football team. But the movie has nothing to do with football. It has to do with the relationships built there. Well, th- th- there's a relationship that I'm curious about. It, you, they hint at it a little bit in the movie, and you talk about it a little bit in the book. But, uh, you know, Bill, I'm a married guy. I spend a lot of time on the road traveling. When I'm home, I'm all home. It struck me as a challenge that you face as you pour yourself into these kids, man. These kids who do everything in their power to let you down again and again and again. 
and you keep pulling up in the pickup truck and loving them back. It's it's crazy. It's amazing. It's a great example. But it also, I'm sure, wore thin at home. So how, how do you balance, and did you balance, being the, the coach that these kids needed, and they desperately needed that, and being the dad that your, your four little ones needed at home? I did the poorest job on earth of understanding that balance, and that's why – well, I'm not ruining the movie. I'm not going to ruin the movie. But that's why the movie ended the way it did. Um, I, my, my beautiful wife endured. Look, man, I, I got to work. To, to be able to do this, I'd have to get to the office at 5.30 a.m. I'd work from 5.30 to 3. And then I'd drive to Manassas, and I'd practice from 3.30, 5.30. And the deal was, I'm not going to coach Manassas, and I'm going to coach my own kids. So I coach my girls in basketball, my boys in football, which is fall and winter. So five to three at work, three to five thirty at Manassas, drive an hour out to where we live at six thirty, coach kids from six thirty to eight, get home about eight thirty, have a little bit of dinner, pass out, do it all over again. And of course, Saturday is for film. And Sunday is for church and then uh, practice and game plan and then start it all over again Monday. And so that was seven years. And all the while, my wife had four kids in diapers. Yeah. I mean, we had our kids were one, two, three, and four, or four, five, six, and seven. Pick a year. <laughs> and, and we got on city water and it cleared up. But boy, it was tough for a while. <laughs> I mean, it was it – was, brother, I mean – can you imagine the commitment on her part? No. And, and on my children's part. And so... I, I, truly, you know, I think it, they're it, unsung heroes. They were oh sung a little gosh. bit, but I... I, beyond, I beyond, there's no way anybody can possibly appreciate. Right. I'm going to tell you a story in a second. Um, but the point is, I did a terrible job understanding the level of their buy-in. And... Um, and it, it, it is it is it is something that, on one hand, I regret, but on the other hand, I really appreciate because of the relationship that exists between my, me and my family now, because I grew to understand and appreciate them more as a result. But I will tell you this: um, the Thursday before the playoff game in undefeated, I told, we were eating um, as a family at the table, and I said, guys, listen, I know you've got a lot going on, but I really want all of you to come to the game tomorrow. And Maggie, my oldest daughter, said, wow, what's the big deal? And I said, well, it's playoffs, and if we lose, that'll be it. And they're like, I know, but it's next year. I mean, we'll come if we can, but you, you act like this is a big deal. And I said, and I had not told them, the kids this, until this point, I said, well, if we lose, that's it, and I'm not going back to Manassas next year. And I've not told the team either. I told nobody except the principal. Um, and uh, and they said, why? And I said, because I've been doing this long enough, and I need to spend my time at home and coaching you guys and just being here. And my son, Will, who's my third child, who was nine at the time, 
looked at me with tears rolling down his face, and he said, Daddy, it's okay. They need you more mm. than we do. And I, I cannot describe to you the enormity of the guilt I felt that my own children had decided to forego their father for a football program. And the sickening irony that I felt that the very thing that drove me to be so consistent for Manassas was the lack of an own father in my life and the sick irony that in trying to make that all right in my life, I was actually doing it to my own children. So when I tell you I had the balance all wrong, I had the balance all wrong. And, um, I'm, I'm, you know, it, it's, it remains one of my biggest regrets, but also one of the greatest lessons because of the relationship I have with them now, which is amazing. Well, Bill, it's an amazing share. You you mentioned you gave this up for a football program, and I would just challenge that. You, you gave it up for 75 kids, man. So uh, we, we make trade-offs in life occasionally, and what you gave those football players uh, extends well beyond the, the, the Friday nights under, under the lights. I'm, I'm going to shift gears just a little bit, and then we're going to wrap up by taking you through the Live Inspired 7 questions. But in, in hearing a story like this— Oh, boy, nobody told me about that. The well, producer you, didn't mention that. Buck, Live Inspired 7 quickies or something? Well, Jimmy Kimmel oh, didn't, like a didn't, rapid didn't, he oh, didn't okay. take you through this, Kimmel? You were bragging <laughs> nah. before, man. Now you can brag that you were on the O'Leary, oh, the O'Leary I'm, couch. I'm crawfishing big time. There's some static <laughs> There's some static on this thing. All right, man, we're, we're, we're not quite there yet. So when you, when you hear uh, a life like the one you've lived and the one— that you observe through your own coaching and through your own eyes. Uh, I, I think many of us hear it from two different lenses. So help me answer this one. For those of us who are beat up right now by life, um, whether that's academically, financially, relationally, whatever, man, pick, pick your poison. Some of us are completely beat down right now. What encouragement would you offer those of us who are mightily struggling? That every single day is an opportunity. And I, I mean it. I mean, you're talking to a guy who dove out a window at 17 years old after having 38 caliber bullets fly past his head because his fourth daddy decided he didn't want to deal with him anymore. And three weeks later, checked into a dorm room in college the first day I ever stepped on campus because he didn't have the money to get down there and really go visit. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I understand struggle. I really do. Uh, in 2006, I got a bustling business going on. In 2007, the world hits the wall. And in a business that I've got tons of leverage and debt in and killed myself to build, I have to show up one day and fire about 45 people just to keep the doors open. I mean, all of us get hit in the mouth. All of us have struggles. All of us, from porn to infidelity to alcoholism and drug abuse to sexuality. I mean, we all have some struggles, all of us, in some way or another. Um, but every single day that the sun's up and air comes into our lungs is an opportunity to get it right. Mm. And, and oftentimes people say, hey, you know, that guy's got great character. Just look at him. And he's walking around in a suit and tie and everything looks great. And on the surface, everything, you know, that, that's, that's crap. Character has nothing to do 
with that. Character is not about how you handle your successes. It's all about how you handle your failures. And so every day when we've got those challenges and there's failings in our life, we have an opportunity to respond in the right way. And, and I, that may sound so simplistic, but honestly, I, you know, for anybody struggling, I, I, I think if you just look in the mirror and say, I got a chance tomorrow to make this better. And then I have a chance the day after that to make that better mm-hmm. and, and decide that, that, you're going to understand that it does not matter what happened every single day of your life, yesterday and before. The only thing that matters, because it's the only thing you can control, is what happens today and the remaining days of your life, which gives you an opportunity every single day to show fortitude, strength, character, um, consistency, and make yours and the lives of those around you better. And when you're when you're blessed with that daily opportunity every day, seize it. Mm. It's a great it's a great opportunity. Just seize it, and it's never too late to to take that opportunity. Um, Bill, for those of us who are on the other side of the the ledger, in the black, man, we're we're crushing it. We're successful. We are the one wearing that fancy suit, and uh, our hair looks great, and our lives look beautiful, and our finances are perfect. W- what encouragement would you offer those of us who? Uh, who are frequently on that viaduct you re- referenced earlier, driving through, you know, difficult areas that we just zoom right through. What, what's the encouragement two, for those of us who are successful? Two things. Don't be a turkey person hmm. because you may think you're being a leader, but you're not. Um, people see a fraud in a turkey person. So motive matters. Um, and then wow. maybe more importantly is, um, you know, you can you can get all the accolades and all the money and all the trophies in the world, and if that's what defines you, um, I, I've never seen a trophy you can stand on. If I, excuse me, if I stacked up a hundred dollar bills in bricks about four feet up, that's a million dollars in cash. But if you stood on it, it would buckle, fall right out out from under you. And and the metaphor is. You can't stand on money. You can't stand on trophy. You can't stand on accolades. You can't stand on all that stuff that everybody looks at when they see you. It's not a proper foundation. Your foundation has got to be service, leadership, character, selflessness, commitment. And if you stand on that, and that's a proper foundation for your life, you're able to handle all those good things that have become your way. But if you were being defined by and making the foundation of your life, all of the stuff that you've made and earned, it may not happen today, but it will eventually happen. You will collapse and fall right on your butt because you can't stand on it. So don't be a turkey person and make sure your foundation's right so you can handle all those successes and blessings that came your way. Mm. Brother Bill, we're going to shift gears. We're going to take you uh, onto the Live Inspired Couch, man, so uh, don't lose signal quite yet. you got seven questions to go, and then, uh, and then we'll let you get back to coaching up others and living your life. The first question is, and this is a question everyone from Dave Ramsey to – to Joe Buck and everybody in between has been asked and has answered, what's the best book that you've ever ever read? The Bible. Tomorrow, you discover your wealthy uncle has shockingly died at 103, leaving you, Bill, with millions. What would you do with that newfound wealth? I would pay off all the debt in my business. I would pay off my home. I would set up a trust 
for each of my kids in the amount of $500,000, which would be enough to let them start whatever they needed, but have to earn the rest. And I would uh, donate the rest of it to worthy causes. Man, tomorrow you come home and your house is ablaze. It's on fire. Your four little kids are out. The animals are out. Your spouse is out. All living things are out. And you have an opportunity, Bill, to run in and grab one thing that matters to you. What's the one item you'd run back into that that house for? My wedding ring. If you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach and have a long conversation on a gorgeous day with anyone, man, living or dead, who would you want it to be? Christ. What would you talk about? I would have him explain a couple things. <laughs> I would talk, honestly, I would talk about, I would talk about Romans eight and nine. Um, I would talk about um, how come so much science and so much theology agree, but then so much of it also disagrees. And, I would, uh, I would, I would, I would, I would ask him to explain um, why there's why the the social ills that we are facing today um, are in such contrast to so many of the natural feelings we have as human beings. Mm. Well, let me know when you have that conversation. I think these are three worthy questions to go a little bit deeper into, but I, I bet the answer I, I, will make I, it all clear. I think I'll get them about 35 seconds after I take my last <laughs> breath. <laughs> all right, man. Well, before that happens, let's make sure we get the final two in. What's the best advice that you've ever received? Wow. What is the best advice I've ever received? Uh, um, don't tell people what they want to hear. Tell them the truth. Tell them what you're going to do and do it. Mm. What would you tell your 20-year-old redheaded self? So 20 years old, man, what would you, what would you want to hear? What wisdom would you want to hear as a 20-year-old? Um, don't try so hard to prove yourself to other people. Right on. All right, man, you've made it through. The final question is this. It's been said that all great people and coaches, Bill, can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you want your one sentence to read? Through the grace God has shown me, I've done my best to offer grace to others. Well, Bill, Courtney, thank you for sharing your grace with us, and thank you for leading these boys in the field of life, man, for seven years at Manassas and subsequently to other schools beyond. Where, where can we learn more about you, your work, your books, your movie, your life? Well, here's the shameless plug. You can go to CoachBillCourtney.com. Uh, you can follow, follow me at I am Coach Bill on Twitter or Instagram or the Facebook page. There's a whole social media platform, and at CoachBillCourtney.com, there's an Amazon icon to my book. There's an Amazon icon to Undefeated. 
Uh, you can learn more about the other stuff that I've done. I, I speak still all over the world, um, represented by WME, and so there's a link there if you're interested in speaking stuff. Um, and there's even more stuff over the coming months that's in development that uh, that continues this narrative um, that I'm excited about. So there's lots. Well, man, uh, today was a phenomenal, I'm using your words, a phenomenal opportunity with a guy I respect, I look up to, and I think <laughs> not only is it great, he, he, he is giving to his four kids what he did not receive himself, but the great thing, Coach, is you're giving it to these kids on the athletic field that are desperately starved for it, man. So thanks for sharing that coaching, that wisdom, and that life with us today. Man, I, I, you're really, really, really far too kind, but I appreciate you having me on. I really do. Uh, man, that was Bill Courtney. This is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired. Well, my friends, that was Bill Courtney. I appreciate you joining us this time. I, I told you on the front side it was going to be a remarkable conversation with a phenomenal man. And I'm assuming after hearing that episode and that conversation, that's exactly what was proven true. You, you probably also feel a little bit challenged to do a little bit more in your life. So whether we currently are beat up by life, like you said, some of us are there from time to time. Relationships, finances, life gets hard. He challenged us not to be a victim to it, to wake up and again do life a little bit better today than we did yesterday and to do tomorrow a little bit better than we did today. And if today we are rocking and rolling and healthy and life is awesome, to not be a turkey. Don't be a turkey person. How about that? But to be the kind of man, the kind of woman, the kind of leader who makes their life and a living example that inspires those around us to do a little bit more, but also to occasionally come down to the level of where they are, to meet them there, and to walk with them for a while, to coach them there for a while. My friends, if you've enjoyed this episode as much as I enjoyed bringing it to you, do me a big favor right now. Go to johnolearyinspires.com. You can learn more about this episode there, learn, learn more about all of our podcasts there. You can also share the link. You can sign up to receive additional information on these episodes and on the building, budding community that we have on the Live Inspired website right now. So go to johnolearyinspires.com. Tell your friends, tell the people you work with, tell those that you worship with about the Live Inspired podcast. Remind them that not all media is negative media. We are trying to push back the darkness and bring out the light. So for this time, and until next time, this is John O'Leary, and this is your day. Live inspired.